The TARDIS has died. Stranded in early 20th century London, Bernice can only stand and watch as it slowly disintegrates. In the East End, a series of grisly murders has been committed. Is this the work of the ghostly spring Jack? Or, as Bernice suspects, something even more sinister? In a tiny shop in Bloomsbury, the master of a grand order of sorcerers is nearing the end of a 700-year quest for a fabled magic wand. And, on a barren world in the far distant future, the queen of a dying race pleads for the help of an old hermit named Moldwick, or possibly Moldwich. Moldwike? While Ace leads a group of gorillas in a desperate struggle against their alien oppressors. These events are related. Perhaps the Doctor knows how. But the Doctor has gone away. Hi, I'm Ian, and welcome to We're All Stories in the End, which is my podcast that I make all about the Virgin New Adventures and the BBC Eighth Doctor novels. Uh, it really is my show. It's all about me. Me, me, me. Sadly, however, um, I'm not in it there this month because I've got to pop into the other studio where we're recording an episode about the novel Iceberg, um, which happens at the same time as the re- recording of this episode. So I'm going to have to leave you um, in the capable hands of my trusted AI assistant, Agent Orange, who doesn't actually have any hands. Thank you, Master. Here is James with the prologue. The Great Rift Valley, March 1926. The Doctor stretched out his arms expansively, as if to encompass the entire African continent, and gazed down at the vast savannas of Ngorogoro. The air hung heavy with the smell of the thorn trees and of sun-baked soil. Down below him, in the greatest natural crater known to mankind, thousands upon thousands of lion and gazelle, buffalo and zebra were born, lived and died without ever knowing the world outside. The world of men and war, of love and hate, of treachery and deception. It was going to be a long time before they were all extinct, the doctor thought sadly, remembering all too clearly when he witnessed the very last lion on earth being shot dead on this very spot. Ace was singularly unimpressed. She'd joined the Professor to see the universe, not prat around in some arid wilderness in the middle of the Great Rift Valley. If his idea of fun was being an extra in a David Attenborough programme, then he could forget it. This is an enchanted place, Ace, said the Doctor. The cradle of humankind, the place where the first Homo sapiens lifted her eyes heavenwards and wandered. I've been coming here for a long time now. The hills and mountains are like old friends. He gestured towards the mountains, purple and blue in the distance. Kilimanjaro, the highest mountain in Africa, he said, indicating the snow-capped peak. And Mount Meru, and Mount Kukuruk. Wrong, gloated Ace, and pointed to the Bardica, 2002 edition, that she'd insisted on borrowing from the TARDIS's library. The Doctor sulked. Well, perhaps not now, but it will be. A friend of mine will live there one day. Ace looked curiously at the Time Lord. Every day she was learning to trust him more and more, but even now there was something undeniably spooky about a man who could travel into both the past and the future. 
How much did he know about what was going to happen? How much did he know about the future? The future of Earth, Charlton Athletic's chances in the cup, her own personal future. She was about to ask him when she spotted a tall aristocratic figure in the distance, standing stork-like on one leg on the plain. He'd been there for a long, long time, so much part of the African landscape that Ace hadn't noticed him until now. He turned slowly, and slowly looked up to them, and waved. The doctor waved back and took Ace by the hand, leading her to the figure whose simple red shuka, or toga, belied his status as chief of the Maasai race of Eastern Africa. Greetings, doctor, he said in his native tongue. It has been a long time. Greetings, Nikosai, the doctor said in the Mai tongue, and then reverted to English for Ace's benefit. Might I introduce my companion, Ace? Greetings, Ace, said Nikosai in almost perfect English. The doctor here has spoken of you often. It is good that I finally meet you. Ace looked challengingly at the doctor, as if to say, And what have you been saying about me this time? Because I, I have an urgent task elsewhere, the doctor said guiltily. Would you look after Ace for a few hours? And this was the first Ace had heard of it. Hey, if you're going off somewhere interesting, then I'm coming too. Not this time, Ace the doctor said cryptically. This is something I have to do on my own. Nakose is an old friend of mine. He'll take good care of you. Ace started to protest, but the doctor was already making his way back to the TARDIS. 39 Dean Street, Soho, London, 1909. The white-haired old lady crushed the crepe de chine dress to her lined and tired face, smelling its luxury, and smiled. It reminded her of the summers of her youth, when her parents would take her and her brother Edward over to Paris, on their way to the south of France. "'Doctor, they're beautiful,' she said, and indicated the chic dresses which were spread out all over the bed. "'But who are they for?' A young friend of mine, he said. Margaret regarded her old friend with a knowing twinkle in her eyes. It's about time, she chided fondly. A man such as you should not be alone. You spend far too much time by yourself as it is. It, it's not healthy. The doctor coloured and touched the Aztec brooch which he had taken to wearing on the lapel of his jacket as if it were a talisman. She's just a friend, Margaret he said hurriedly. Her name's Benny. Margaret tut-tutted. Benny? And what sort of name is that for a young woman? She's a, a foreigner, explained the doctor. She'll be arriving shortly. Do you mind if she has the spare room, Margaret? The old lady smiled. She'd known the mysterious Scotsman for more than half her life, and yet he still treated her as if she were the mistress of this spacious apartment in the heart of London's Soho when in fact it was he who owned the flat. And if someone had told Margaret that he also owned half of London, she wouldn't have been at all surprised. He was a strange one, was Dr Smith. Strange, but also the kindest, most gentle man she had ever known. Any friend of yours is a friend of mine, you should know that by now, she said, 
and added, After all, we've known each other for... What is it now? Forty-two years, said the doctor. That's right, and this is your home after all, the kindly old woman reminded him. I just look after it for you. Why, I'm little more than your housekeeper. You're more to me than that, Margaret, the doctor said, and pulled an elaborate watch chain from out of his waistcoat pocket. I have to go now, he said guiltily. I have an appointment at the bank. Margaret looked accusingly at him, making him feel uncomfortable. There was very little he could keep from this old lady. I wonder if you could pick up some books for me. He handed her a grubby business card. Jared Khan, Antiquarian Bookseller, 31 and a half Museum Street, Bloomsbury, London. Of course, she said, and fixed him with a knowing eye. And will you be back later for tea? Soon, he lied, but perhaps not for tea. Margaret nodded wisely. Her old friend need say no more. The doctor opened the door, but before he left the apartment he paused, and without turning round he asked, By the way, Margaret, what are your favourite flowers? Margaret frowned. It seemed a strange question from one who she normally never considered the sentimental type. White lilies, she said, but what makes you ask? Just curious, my dear, dear friend, just curious, the doctor said, and brushed a tear from his eye as he remembered the first time he had ever met Margaret, and the day that she had died. Coots Bank, The Strand, London February 1868. The horse-drawn hansom cab rumbled to a halt outside the exclusive Coots Bank in the Strand, London, in the 31st year of the reign of Victoria, Queen of Great Britain and Ireland, and soon to be Empress of India. The doctor leapt sprightly out of the cab and offered his hand to the pretty young woman accompanying him, who lifted her long skirts to avoid the rubbish strewn in the gutter before the bank's imposing facade. She looked around, breathing in once more the sights and sounds of the greatest city the planet had ever known. It was good to be home, she thought, even though it was only for a short while. She looked curiously at the doctor. He had changed his appearance, and it was hard to reconcile the impish, scruffly-dressed tramp with the more saturnine creature before her. But no matter. He had brought her here in the TARDIS, and beneath his external appearance she could still catch the essence of the man she had once loved and respected above all others after her father. He had once talked of his family. It was only now that he had returned to her that she realised that she, and all the others who had ever travelled with him, were the only family he had ever known. "'You're glad to be back in your own time, Victoria?' the doctor asked in that curious Scottish burr of his. Victoria Waterfield smiled nostalgically. I miss it sometimes, she said, but I'm happy in the twentieth century with my adoptive parents. I'm pleased, said the doctor, and surprised himself by meaning it. We are here for some very important business, you know. Victoria sighed. I know. There are papers to be signed, letters to be sent, monies to be transferred... Are you sure it won't upset you? 
The doctor's concern was genuine. Father is dead, said Victoria philosophically. He died on Skyro, a victim of those horrible Skaro creatures. We know that, said the doctor. The authorities think he died in a house fire in Canterbury. I'm his sole heir, Victoria continued, and I can do with his money and his properties what I want. It must be your own decision, Victoria, the doctor said. I trust you, doctor, Victoria stated categorically. I'll do what you want me to do, and after that, doctor... Yes? I'd like to see my aunt, she said. It's so long since I last saw her. She's the closest family I have now. Apart from you, that is. Of course you may see your aunt, said the doctor, as he opened the door to the bank for her. I've already told her that you would be visiting today. And if I know Margaret Waterfield... She's already put the kettle on. The Great Rift Valley, March 1926 Well, you took your time getting back, grumbled Ace, as the Doctor opened the doors of the TARDIS, which had materialised just in front of the red mud hut where Ace and Nakoshe were waiting for him. The sun was sinking low over the horizon, and in the distance could be heard the sound of the African predators as they awoke from their daytime torpor to begin their nocturnal hunt. "'Was I away for long?' asked the doctor. "'Hours. It feels like years to me,' he admitted. "'Has Nikose taken good care of you?' Ace looked affectionately at her newfound friend. "'Ah, it was well, wicked professor!' she said. He showed me lion and rhino and elephant and... Ah, just like out of Africa then, he chuckled, and bade goodbye to the Maasai chief. He led Ace into the TARDIS and began to operate the dematerialisation circuits. And was there anything else Nakose showed you on your mini safari, he asked. Nah, not really, she said, and then frowned. Apart from the termites, that is. Termites? asked the doctor trying to sound casual. Yeah, hundreds and thousands of termite nests, she said. If I ever get back to Perivale and Miss Crickleshank's biology classes, I'm going to be the world's expert. She glanced suspiciously at her friend. Why'd you ask? Mm, just curious, Ace, that's all, he lied, as the TARDIS vanished from Earth en route for the colony world of Terra Alpha. So thought the doctor almost guiltily. The pieces are all in place, and the game can now begin. This month, Ian spoke to his podcasting nemesis, the brooding, saturnine and urbane Dr Matt Barber, about Nigel Robinson's novel Birthright. Downloading next. I will. I will. Um, so, did you did you read Birthright when it came out, or were you a latecomer to the the fun? No, I read Birthright when it came out. So it was in that period of new adventures where I was buying them as they came out. 
I wasn't necessarily reading them as I bought them. They often sat on my right. shelves for a while. But to be honest, the front cover kind of like persuaded me to read it. That okay. And I now and I know there's a kind of age one upmanship here. So you would have been at what secondary school, primary school when that came oh out. God. Oh. And I would have been in the womb. So hang on, how old are you? <laughs> I'm I'm 26. Oh, oh of course, yes. <laughs> um, so 1993, I would have been, yeah, I would have been in secondary school, maybe just about in college. I would have yeah. been, I was born in 77, 16. Right. Okay. 16, so that's, yeah. that's, that's a, a, a good young age. Yeah, I, so, I think I was the target for a lot of the new adventures. My, my sort of age range was, yeah. was the target. Yeah, I think so. So up until Birthright came out, what ones had you enjoyed? What ones hadn't you enjoyed? Um, so I'd enjoyed, and I'm just trying to trying to remember what order they come in. Um, I definitely enjoyed Exodus because it was very. That was the first one that felt like old Doctor Who to me. Um, I didn't. I didn't get on with with Genesis. I like the idea of Revelation more than the execution. Um, I'd read Nightshade and enjoyed that. I couldn't get through Transit, though I've since read it and really enjoy it. Uh, the Pit. <laughs> the, yeah, The Pit. So, so yeah, those those were the main ones, I think. I sort of dipped in, but it was very much Old Times Crucible. I, I liked it. Again, liked the idea, but it, it kind of didn't have enough to sustain a novel for me. Um so at the time I was I was kind of excited by the too broad and too deep concept, but I was still kind of looking for Deadly Assassin in book form and not quite not quite finding it. Um yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. So if you can if you can remember I because at the time I remember thinking Birthright was really rather good. And I would have been a year or two older than you at most. Yeah. Um, is that is that how you remember it? So I remember, vaguely remember it. I remember the the beginning being really good. I remember the 1909 stuff being pretty good. Um, but eventually, after a few chapters, I just started writing my own novel in my head. And I kind of <laughs> lost focus on it because it wasn't... It wasn't the novel that I thought it was going to be based on the front. So the front cover is, I was really into Father Brown at the time and Sherlock Holmes, I still am, but Sherlock Holmes, Father Brown, and I had an edition of Father Brown and I think lots of books in the same series had the same cover. It was a, a Atkinson Grimshaw cover. So Atkinson Grimshaw did these amazing kind of misty, foggy sort of city streets and lonely figures at the end of country lanes and Lots of sort of, lots of sort of weird yellow light coming through, and the birthright cover is is as I discovered recently, an Atkinson Grimshaw painting that they've kind of sort of crafted the TARDIS into, and and so I I saw this cover, I thought it was going to be sort of Sherlock Holmesy, which at times it is. I saw the TARDIS on the cover, which is weird. It's a really weird version of the TARDIS that doesn't reflect any other version. It's got this kind of pyramidal top to it rather than the stacked top. 
Now, who painted? Let me just. I'm just going to look at the book. Who who painted that? It'll it'll say oh. here somewhere. Peter Elson. Yeah. Now I'm pretty sure he's painted the TARDIS at other points in his life and painted it better or more accurate. Well, you say better or certainly more accurate. I'm still not. I'm still not convinced that it's some that it's wrong because <laughs> I look at it and I think that's that's almost like a sort of Victorian steampunk version of the TARDIS that works so well in that picture. I think the composition is. I think it's a great front cover. I think, yeah. and the TARDIS makes it. If it was a normal 1980s TARDIS, I don't think it would have been as good. And I was kind of distracted when I read it, the book the first time, looking for a reason why the TARDIS looked weird. Because Sanctuary did the same thing and had something that looked like the TARDIS, I think, on the front. But it turns out, when you read it, it's not the TARDIS, it's the TARDIS, TARDIS's escape shuttle, which sounds like a boring concept, but then you rename the escape shuttle the Jade Pagoda. And suddenly it becomes really exciting and evocative. And I thought this was going to be something like this. I'm not sure it is. I mean, you could sort of retcon, retcon the story around it. But I'm, I'm of a mind that it's quite brave. I mean, he must have consciously like screwed it up. He must have consciously <laughs> did it in such a way that doesn't look like the hardest. And certainly it must have got through the got through editors and because these aren't just like these aren't just accepted are they yeah no they're all they're all heavily commissioned yeah. and heavily re-edited and stuff and it's so I'll wrong tell you, it's uh, so wrong it's got text on two of the panels <laughs> yeah oh my god which is yeah and I've just noticed Big Ben as well and I'd never noticed that before so that's the Atkinson Grimshaw stuff so the Houses of Parliament right. I think he did a, a painting of the Houses of Parliament and I think it's not quite, it's not identical, but it's pretty, I think it's pretty traced. I think it's pretty much, it's got, it goes beyond inspiration and he actually, he actually uses, uses bits of the painting and puts it in. Um, but, but also I, I think the TARDIS roof does sort of mirror the, the top of the, the, the Elizabeth Tower to be, to be accurate about what it's yes. I suppose maybe, maybe his brief or maybe his his idea was if I sort of paint the TARDIS wrong, with you know writing on two panels and a, a a weird roof, maybe that'll sort of adequately evoke the fact that it's dead. Yeah, and but also the TARDIS is split. If I, and I, I read this. I only read this oh, two weeks ago, so I'm only mm. vaguely remembering it. Um. The TARDIS is split into two, so that's what I was sort of thinking that it could be a kind of a reflection, but it would take it would take a kind of fan interpretation of what's written on the page, a quite deep fan interpretation to try and twist the explanation to yes. to suit it. But then I don't I never really mind that because yeah, the TARDIS looks like it's a sort of a Victorian version of the police box. Yeah. And, really, and you've got this Oh, sorry. No, don't. No, it's your. No, I was going to say that the. Uh, <laughs> you, you, talk, you talk over me. Shit! What do I do? I mean, I I, uh, I record with JR, so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, as as you were saying, the cover kind of makes you think you're in for this kind of Victorian foggy killer in the mist mm-hmm. kind of you know manhunt for a 
what's going to turn out to be an alien killer. Yeah. And I suppose while that's not completely untrue, it is rather misleading in terms of what you what you ultimately get. Yes. So so what what I decided on rereading it is the the novel I wanted it to be when I was 16 probably wouldn't have been a novel. And what I was looking for from the new adventures wouldn't have made very good novels. I don't think for instance I don't think Pyramids of Mars would make a good kind of 250 page novel. I think it would fall off off the end. It makes a good television what makes a good television story doesn't make a good novel. And and so Birthright um for spoiler alert for a book that's now, you know, nearly 30 years old. Um Birthright kind of kind of has a surprising amount set in 1909. So what I remember of it is the first the first third is 1909. Then there's a lot set on an alien planet that Russell T. Davis would never do. And then there's another third set in this kind of cyberspace, headspace, weird, surreal realm. And actually, a lot more of it is set in 1909 and the alien stuff is blended much better. Um, Rereading it knowing that it, I, I felt that it fell off a cliff. with The the alien setting never appealed to me. And it's a bit like um, the later book, All Consuming Fire, which is another one set in Victorian times. It's the Sherlock Holmes spoof. I, I bought it. I really like the Sherlock Holmes stuff because I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes and Victorian pop culture. And then it falls off a cliff when they go to the, the planet of the Quick Quacks. And it, it's just, it's got that kind of 90s new adventure, lots of apostrophes in the names and... And yeah, I just couldn't Jesus. get on with it when I was when I <laughs> so, was younger. So I was I was going to read it. Obviously, I, I I read it last weekend. Um, I've been meaning to read it for a couple of weeks, but I couldn't get past the first line. As soon as you've got a name with an apostrophe yeah. in it, and then sort of ten honorifics following to explain who the character is, I was very quickly. I'm finding this is like the probably the third new adventure I've done for this podcast, but I'm getting quite tired of that <laughs> so that house what, style. What you're saying is you, you've you organised this podcast and you're discovering you don't like the new, advent- <laughs> the new adventures very much? Well, I'm, sl- I'm slowly reassessing them. You know, all-consuming fire perhaps wasn't the masterpiece I thought it was. And spoilers with this one, but I th- I thought the memory had cheated really quite a lot when I came to reread Birthright. Well, we're gonna have we'll be we're gonna have fisticuffs. We're gonna have Victorian fisticuffs because I'm the absolute reverse. The when I read it originally, I was really disappointed. This time, I'd steeled myself, knowing that there was going to be crick cracks, apostrophe, alien planets, and so I I actually concentrated more on those I made sure I knew exactly what was going on and what the storyline it's a bit like Planet of the Spider oh you don't really know <laughs> you don't really know Doctor Who <laughs> so. I've seen Planet of the Spiders oh okay so it's a bit like Planet of the Spiders in a sense that that when they get to again when they get to the alien planet it kind of goes a bit off the boil yes but if you concentrate on it then you can get through it so I, I think th- the point where John Pertwee appears in that one for me is where it goes off the boil. <laughs> so, so I was I approached this concentrating as much on the alien stuff because when I was sixteen, I read the alien stuff as quickly as possible to get to the Edwardian stuff. 
Whereas this one, I gave as much weight to my reading on the uh, the Victoria the uh, the alien stuff, and it kind of it kind of worked for me. It kind of worked pretty well. I don't think it's a masterpiece. This is the novel in general. I don't think uh, Nigel Robinson is the greatest sort of prose stylist. I think there's still the the other thing that New Adventures do. There's a lot of kicking people in the groin, and there's one description of of Ace that's that's sort of almost cartmally in in his sort of <laughs> obsession with Ace's body, and yes, and there's a kind oh. of there's the thing with New Adventures that they slightly predate young young adult fiction, that sort of boom in young adult fiction. So they can't, they're kind of doing a sort of torchwood thing of not quite knowing how to tell a Doctor Who story, but in an adult way. And instead of just telling a really good adult, you know, adult novel with with great styling and atmosphere, they just introduce violence or gore or, you know, lascivious descriptions of women's bodies and sex. And it's always Sophie Aldred. Yes. And I've never understood yeah. why they, you've got Bernice, who, you know, when I was 15, 16, whatever, Bernice was the most attractive woman in the universe. Really? And really? Yeah. Okay. And you could project anything onto her because she's not played by an actress. <laughs> and if you're, so... for example, Andrew Cartmel, Sorry, you... it won't appear creepy. And did, and did you project things onto her? <laughs> No, I didn't. I'm saying I'm saying the writers could have done I'm that. I'm sure they uh, I'm sure they did sat at their desks projecting, projecting away. Sure, I'm sure they did. I'm sure there are a lot of rejected projections. So I um, think well I think I think this is the this is the other thing that struck me rereading Birthright is how how difficult it is translating how much the seventh doctor and ace are T V characters. And how much their relationship, their personality, their characters, whether you like that era or not, kind of work on television. But as soon as you put, particularly the Seventh Doctor, into a book, it's it almost becomes impossible because you can't you can't get inside his head because that doesn't work with the Doctor. The Doctor is a purely external, externally constructed character, and that just comes off as boring in a book. So I think what birthright does so what the new adventures do quite quite sensibly is they they take ace abuse her in the future a bit in a war and dump her back into the series as a completely different character not necessarily more interesting i think ace is ace is this sort of ace is kind of a failure in the more adult books because they've gone down this kind of starship troopers sort of hard-bodied um, avenue for her, which I don't think I don't think was her destiny in the TV series. Um, but what Birthright does quite sensibly is it's a Doctor Light's novel, um, and it's other other new adventures of Doctor Light, but they're not they're not so explicit about it. So with this one, the Doctor absolutely isn't in it because he's off having an adventure in in another novel that I thought I'd love. <laughs> Oh God! But, yes, but turns out not to be very good, which is Iceberg. I mean, I, Cybermen, written by David. Yeah, so He'd, one would one would have expected better. Yeah, so uh, so Seventh Doctor is off in that, and I think that's all to the benefit. Again, when I read it when I was sixteen, I was thinking, oh, the Doctor's not in this. What's the point? Having watched the new series where they occasionally do Doctor Light 
stories and I can now see the point of a Doctor Light story because in some ways telling a story with the absence of a Doctor is the best way of defining who the Doctor is and what he does. And so I get more of a sense of a seventh Doctor in Birthright than I do in any of in many of the novels where he actually appears because it's it's perfect for his character. He's an unseen an unseen presence through it. I mean he does pop up once or twice yes. but in but they never say specifically who it is. So Yes. While yeah. while he is in iceberg yeah. and this is very definitely what happens when he is in iceberg, yeah. he's still in this, which is you could argue it's a cheat, you could argue it's sort of backdoor genius. I don't know. Well, there's that kind of, so you're talking about Moldwitch? Well, that... no, I'm talking about the bit... Oh, there's... there's cameos by the actual yeah. Seventh Doctor, but there's also Moldwitch, yeah. which is kind we'll, of... Well, we'll, which is... we'll get to him. Yeah, but... OK, we'll get to him. But my, my, my point is, actually, Bernice Summerfield is the, the most interesting character. So the, the, the brilliant thing about bringing Bernice Summerfield in is because she's a novelistic character. She's, she's a character that works in fiction. And she's been thought about. Paul Cornell is actually a genuinely good novelist. There are a few genuinely good novelists that come from the New Adventures stable. Paul Cornell, Ben Aronovich. Um, and so Bernie Summerfield does, does is in this novel. She's a genuinely likeable presence. You want to know what happens to her. Ace, less so. But I think Ace, they concentrate on Ace's body because she's... They kind of brick themselves up or they've they've come up with a dead end with her character by making her hard bodied that all she's got left is her body. That she doesn't have a story anymore. She's just got she's just grumpy and she's got a body. And I think that's and, why and, they're focused. And weaponry. And weaponry. Yeah. Weaponry. Yeah. So she's a, a tool in the in the sort of a, the non derogatory sense. But Bern- but this novel's very Bernice Summerfield heavy. So this is virtually a Bernie Summerfield, you know, standalone story. And for that first, I want to say it's about a hundred pages where it is following Benny. Yeah, that obviously, I think, is is the best bit. Yeah, one hundred nine pages before they get onto part two, Ace. But then Ace kind of, but then it's only like maybe fifty pages, sixty pages before it's. It's 50 pages, and then it's Benny and Ace back in 1909. So we're, we're talking about maybe maybe a fifth of the novel is the kind of the interminable Planet of the Spiders, um, Planet of the Spiders kind of, you know, freedom fighters with the, the alien insects in it. Well, it's also got the cliche that the, the, the barren and arid deserted world that Ace is trapped on oh, yes. turns out to also be Earth. Yes. Which, so Earth which, goes through its you know, Ravelox phase, Anticon, um, Orphan 55. Yeah. It's, it's, the future doesn't look good for the Earth. But it does it in so uh, it does it in so much better a way than Orphan 50. So do you want to know what my problem with Orphan 55 Bring is? it on. Bring it on. So, yeah, Mysterious Planet... It's a great twist, and it's done again and again. It's a great twist. Mysterious Planet reveals they get, they, they're in the forests, they go down into tunnels, and the twist is it's a London underground tunnel. It's Marble Arch or, or whatever. That's a, that's a twist. Orphan 55 is set in Siberia. <laughs> and Siberia, as far as I'm concerned, and this might be, you know, it might be racist of me, it might be narrow-minded of me, but Siberia actually looks a bit like 
where they are in Orphan 55 anyway. So they go down in a tunnel, they see Russian, which looks to me a bit like an alien language, so I don't speak Russian. So the twist is entirely neutered in Orphan 55 because they haven't got something familiar that they suddenly shock you with. They've got something unfamiliar that they then have to explain is Russia, Siberia and Russia. And that's completely... that that The twist works, but it doesn't work in that way. And then, and then, then they depict... The, the the main monsters as being the working class who have degenerated over naturally de- de-evolved over time to become these ravenous monsters and the the upper middle class are the heroic the heroic holiday makers who have to defend and kill the working class so politically speaking i'm not entirely sure orphan 55 is on safe ground either there's a lot of very very questionable politics in the Chibnall era, but um, <laughs> but you know that's 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 not for us to worry about. I mean, yes, I think you're you're right in that this um, the bit with Ace is fa- fairly hard work. I think that's fair to say, but it is surprisingly uh, brief when you read it this time around. It is, and I think I think it's necessary. I don't think it's. I think it would be better if it was, if it wasn't an insect alien planet. If it wasn't, because it's got that kind of web planet thing where you watched, as you've watched recently, uh, you watch the web planet and you applaud the the conceptual idea of setting something purely on an alien planet. No, no sort of human sounds. It's just insects and moths, and it's such a good idea. But after six episodes, you want to claw your eyes out. And you, you you want to, to die because it's you know it's absolutely dull. These these ideas do generally have a a shelf life. Yeah, and, um, sort of ten minutes. Yeah, um, and I, I think ten pages for, for yeah, the ace yeah, section here would have been fine, but it wasn't. It's all it right, and it's bad. it's leavened by the presence of Moldwich as well. I think so. Let's let's get round to Moldwich. Oh, hello, okay. my my cat Harvey's just wandered into the podcast. Hello, Are you all right? Does he have an opinion? Um, he wants some motherfucking chicken and he wants it now. Okay. That's generally his opinion. Okay. Um, I'm not going to pretend he's ever capable of more interiority than that. Um, yeah, let's get round to Moldwich. Yes. Where do we begin with Moldwich? Well, he's another one. So this is another thing that the new adventures, I think, do quite well, which is teasing, teasing the reader into thinking what their that a character might be the master or the meddling monk or possibly the doctor and actually this is so birthright i think influences it does genuinely influence the new series in certain places there are certain things like deep breath deep breath i mean that front cover if you think about deep breath and how the tardis lands lands on the banks of the the thames it's impossible not to think about that cover at the same time I think this this kind of teasing, this kind of having a mysterious character, and then and then teasing them as being a recognisable figure from the Doctor's past, that's something that the new series does endlessly. And social media is full of every time a mysterious woman appears, it's it's got to be Susan, the Rani, or Romana, or yep. all three somehow. Now. Uh- 
Have they ever done a thing where Susan turns out to be the Rani? Because that would obviously sort of tick everyone's box. There's going to be a big finish about that, and I apologise for using language like that on this I podcast. Mean, I mean, at some point, the centenary special is is coming. And, you know, who who knows what might happen in the centenary special? Power of the Doctor. It's going to be great, and we're going to be positive. <laughs> but but no, so so Susan, I don't think has ever been Durrani. Um But I think Mold Moldwich. Firstly, the, I like the name. Um, you do you do think that? So it teases a bit. He could be the master, and actually, actually, I quite I quite like the way they do it because it's revealed. Spoiler alert: that he's he's probably a kind of future reincarnation of the doctor and the fact that he could be the master as you're reading it kind of emphasizes the most interesting or one of the interesting things about the master is if you squint he could be the doctor at times and the seventh doctor kind of looks to being on a trajectory that could end up with the master and this this is also a Valiard thing so so the Valiard is it's kind of that version. The Valiard is a future version of the Doctor. And it's always expressed as if the Doctor goes bad. Whereas with the Seventh Doctor, you get the feeling that the Doctor is on the way to going bad. Um, and I think Moldwitch, the way they, the way he writes Moldwitch, works quite well in, in that sense. It's not an obvious future Doctor. He's a sort of a very kind of amoral, quite a complex character. And his kind of allegiances flit, his motivations flit. He's not a cackling kind of moustache twirling villain. Um and and I think that does leaven that kind of leavens the alien world world bit. I think that improves it. And then he's got sort of counterparts in nineteen oh nine, which are more sort of more kind of Sax Roma characters i'm pretty sure there's a bit of racism in there there's a character called khan who um who may or may not be a kind of i mean this is this is that written in the dark days when towns of wen chiang was acceptable and you could read fu manchu and sort of go well that's charming isn't it that's a, that's a char- charming book by sax roma about the, about the chinese um but but Khan turns out to be the the boy from Scotland who appears in the um, yeah the very tiresome kind of prelude yeah. So Is does that, he explain that does to he... me? So there's this kind of immortal. Oh uh, yeah, okay. There's a there's a young boy. This sounds like I'm starting a limerick. There once yes. was a young boy from Scotland, Urkil Doon. Yeah. Uh, the young stable hand Tommy. Yes. And he ends up being a man called Khan. Yes. So are we? Are we? You know, is he going to be suddenly aging to a point where he looks like he's from a completely different background? Or um, you got to yeah. you got to wonder where the name came from. But but again, I quite liked I quite liked that idea. It might be one idea too many for the novel to sustain itself. Um, so there's a bit of a there's a bit of a time lash about this as well with that kind of that kind of sort of connections with the far past. Um, and I didn't think I think there's a purer there's a purer story in here which just has the alien world and and 1909. 
And I'm saying that kind of having forgotten about this this character, having read having read the book. But well, these books they don't hang around, do they? I mean, I, you reread one, yeah, and then you move on to the next one, and that last one that's gone. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, with Moldwitch, all I when I close my eyes, I think of Dungeon Master from the um, Dungeons and Dragons cartoon show because in my yeah. head he's a short fat guy in a big red robe or something. Yes. And I got I got more of a, a meddling monk vibe than anyone else. I mean I think it's fairly explicit that you're supposed to assume it's gonna be the doctor at some point. But it really could have been the monk and that would have been really nice. It could it could have been. There was a very if I remember rightly, a very, very obvious moment where it suggested it's the master. Because because he sort of he mesmerizes somebody and I think Ace he says, "Oh yes, the doctor used to talk about or something. Something happened, or Benice. Oh no, it's Benice and Khan, isn't it? So Khan sort of hypnotizes somebody, and Benice says, "Oh yes, I remember the doctor talking about this character who could hypnotize people." And then it kind of wink, wink. Um, so Khan is sort of teased as as the master. Um, I had in my head, depress- depressingly, the master from um, Time Flight. The kind of the, uh, the kind of again, again, back in the dark days when Fu Manchu was acceptable to read, and you could have like Anthony Ainley dressed effectively as a kind of a yellow-faced, yellow-faced kind of um, really obscene magician character, and that stuck in my head because you know I, you know I don't love that sort of stuff, but you know it's memorable. <laughs> it certainly is. There's, I mean, sort of drifting slightly off the, the topic of Moldwich, but there are, and this is, I think, a, a constant of Nigel Robinson's work, but there are so many references and allusions to other characters from the past. Yeah. You've got Barbara Wright's granddad at the start. Yeah. You've got um, Victoria Waterfield's aunt. Mm-hmm. And then these sort of fairly pointless mentions of Susan and Sarah mm-hmm. Jane and and Mel, and there's another bit where, you know, someone's thinking about the Doctor and his deep abiding grief because Adric died, and <laughs> Katerina, and you, yeah. know, and you think, oh. I have to say, the Doctor's deep abiding grief isn't shared by me. When, when Adric, Adric dying was always a, a cause of celebration. I think if, if Peter Davison had sort of silently given it a, a bit of a yes... <laughs> I don't think anyone would have been really out of joint about that, except maybe Matthew Waterhouse. So, but um, so but yeah, so so weirdly, sixteen-year-old me would have been looking for those sort of fan wank bits yeah, that reference old yeah. Doctor. I can't yeah. remember noticing them. Sixteen-year-old me noticing them, and it might be that I wasn't, I wasn't as adverse, oh, adverse as as sort of rooted in. I, I must have loved... I knew who Victoria Waterfield was. I must have seen lots of uh, Second Doctor on video by this point. But I must have just sort of... It must have just missed me. But, re- again, rereading it, I kind of liked a lot of it. I thought the throwaway stuff was a bit clumsy. But the Victoria Waterfield stuff, I thought, was quite touching because this is set in a period close to where she comes came from. Um there's there's a bit about sort of a, an explanation as to as to where she's gone and what sort of family she's left behind 
and they they do something horrible and brutal to her, to her family, which I always appreciate. So they the doctor the doctor kind of engineers the death of um, help me out. Is it her aunt the, or the aunt? Yes. Yeah, the doctor sort of brutally engineers the death of the aunt. And I wrote a, I happily wrote a short story for the now unreadable Seasons of War um, anthology. Unreadable because multiple people who have written for that anthology have ended up in prison basically oh. basically so we can't we can't we can't read seasons of war anymore but i've got a story in it where i happily did exactly the same to the brigadier i had the war doctor coming along and engineering the brigadier's death because i thought it would be really a really war you, doctory you brute i know i know and i laughed as i did it and it was great so that I bet you did so egotist, egotistically the treatment of Victoria Waterfield's aunt made me think, oh, yes, that reminds me of the, the one piece of fan fiction I've written oh, <laughs> and, and how, how much I enjoyed writing it. That's t- I'm, I'm, I'm a, you'll be the next one in prison, I clearly. Did it, I did it touchingly. I did it in a... I mean, in many ways, the Brigadier self-sacrificed himself, which is a very brigadier thing. That is a very brigadier yeah. thing. And, to, and he was at the end of his life, so it was like, you know... It wasn't so was it, was it a very old man brigadier on his it last legs? It was a legs? brigadier in, in his nursing home, and the doctor right. kind of took him out on one final adventure. And then... But the doctor knew that the only way to defeat this particular monster was by uh, sacrificing someone by absorbing the monster... And he knew that the brigadier was, you know, close to death. So he persuaded the brigadier to, to you know, take on this burden for the doctor. Oh, and the, I mean, the that, doctor that gives him sound, a hero's death. Basically. That does sound quite good. I, I think I got, I got away with it. Yeah. Oh. But there um, we go. <laughs> I've, I, it's, so another thing um, we get in, in this book that we get with the, the new uh, TV series is you get... This kind of fairly gratuitous marriage of Queen Elizabeth I and oh, yeah. the Doctor and yep. Shakespeare. And, and and this kind of works with the continuity that's been subsequently established on TV. I mean, this could quite easily be the same Queen Elizabeth who had it off with David Tennant. Yeah. Yep. Um, but uh, obviously, when the Doctor is in his Sylvester McCoy incarnation, she's less bothered about that. Yes. Doesn't want to make yep. a fuss. Doesn't yep. need him to hang around. No, no. So, Um, I think I think with the new adventures and this novel included, you can see you can see DNA DNA from the old series that's sometimes clumsily grafted in, and sometimes Mm. it's nicely nicely put in. If it's if it's used in such a way that it advances the plot or it adds a kind of an emotional dimension to the plot, which I think Waterfield does, then I'm all for it. But you can also see seeds of the new series in them as well. Maybe because Stephen Moffat was reading them. I'd, I guess Stephen Moffat, Russell T. Davis did did read them. They'd be a bit old for it, but but you know, they were, I mean, Russell T. Davis wrote them, so he must have he must have read some. Um, well, all these people made that pilgrimage to that pub every month in London. Yeah. So yeah. by the time they're spending that much money on going to the pub every month, then they're going to spend another five quid to read the books, aren't they? Yes. And I guess if you're going to talk to the writers in a pub when you go, then you really want to make sure you've read their books because you, you can't just pretend about it. But it, it, it strikes me that, that uh, 
Russell T. Davis, Stephen Moffat, take take the good stuff out of the new adventures and run with it. And sometimes it's a whole novel with human nature. It's a whole novel they take a whole idea. Sometimes they just kind of cherry pick cherry pick bits of it. Oddly, so this is this is interesting. Wikipedia. I've looked up birthright on Wikipedia. Have you read the Wikipedia entry? So, it says plot, and then it tells you the plot, and then it says production before adaptation, and it says Peter Grimwade wrote the story of the Sixth Doctor adventure called League of the Tancreds in mid nineteen eighty five for season twenty three. It was abandoned due to the show put on a, an eighteen month hiatus. So Wikipedia, and I hadn't heard this before, Wikipedia suggests Birthright is actually based on an unmade season 23 story. So I can't remember which ones. I mean, Grimway did Mordred Undead, I think. Okay, so this kind of fits that template in that it's set in sort of multiple times and yeah, locations. He did Time Flight, which, which oddly I hadn't thought of. But kind of makes. But now, obviously, I'm thinking the, of the master, the master, and, yeah. and Moldwitch yeah. as being in the same position. Yeah, yeah. and that makes sense with Khan as well. So Khan. So I wonder how much of this may have come from from that original idea. So I'm now frantically flipping through it, looking for a bit where Nigel Robinson says. Thank you, the, Peter, for the idea. This is it as, as well. I can't remember seeing seeing any kind of acknowledgement of that. No, at all. Which is weird. Yeah, you would you would think. I mean, you know, copyright law being what it is, you would think that they would mention. Unless I mean, could they have bought? They wouldn't have bought off Nigel uh, Peter Grimway because the new <laughs> adventures wouldn't have the sort of money that could just like pay a. Pay another person. No, you're not going to get Peter Darvel Evans going down into a car park with an envelope full of cash. It's all slipping it to a Grimwade. It's also complicated. <laughs> so Grimwade may have been paid for the script because it was unpublished, unproduced in season 23, but they'd already kind of it was cancelled late in the day. So the BBC may own the script, but then Virgin of it's Virgin New Adventures. So then you've got the BBC and Virgin as separate companies. Yes. So we did not really talk to each other. No. So I I don't know what the, I don't know what the story is. I've looked up Peter Grimwade on Wikipedia and it confirms that um he was commissioned to write League of the Tancreds. Uh his story was due to be set in 1890s New York where the sixth doctor and Perry would encounter an insectoid race called the Tancreds. The story was abandoned obviously due to budgetary con- concerns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like a bit. Killer cats of ginseng. <laughs> um, but it was eventually adapted into a novel birthright. Maybe he he adapted it enough so it didn't resemble the original. But the bare but bo- I mean the, the bare bones of birthright, the bare bones of the story are pretty generic Doctor Who. I mean, even describing it, discussing it with you, I've already like referenced six or seven Doctor Who stories of a similar stu- structure or theme or content. So maybe that's it. Maybe. Um, Nigel Robinson wrote such a generic Doctor Who, made such a generic Doctor Who story out of it that nobody could accuse him of plagiarism or pinching the idea. Well, I mean, that's extraordinary that um, that this mystery has now come to light. I know, I know. And it was, it was, it was, only Wikipedia seemed to know about it. We're we're talking about it as new information. 
And yeah, half the people it, who have heard it in Big Finish are shouting at the podcast going, of course, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> this is, there was like a 400-page article in Doctor Who magazine four months ago about this, this transition. That might be how I missed the story, yeah, to be fair. There we go. That, yeah. But is it, it's interesting. It kind of gives another another spin on on the story. I think Nigel Robinson was also the... Was he the editor of The New Adventures? He was an editor of the Target books, wasn't he? In the okay, sort of, okay. Possibly the last editor of the Target yeah. books before they juddered to a halt. Sure. So if Grim Wade had novelised the story for that little run they did of yeah. missing adventures maybe maybe this is just a yeah a, a fairly cynical cut and shut um the, the other and 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 this part i guess would have been a a fairly new thing for the book but the the ending is is what fandom calls the cyberspace ending yeah um hello indy that's my dog indy she's oh, coming oh it's like it's like it's like doc, doctor doolittle <laughs> Ian Martin speaks to all the animals. She's probably seen a squirrel, so she's going to bark. I mean, for... uh, JR has uh, three chihuahuas and a young son <laughs> who quite often make appearances in our, in our podcast. Yeah, I think, I think he burst in while we were doing a, an all of time and space, that, okay. which was quite funny. Okay. I think it was the one where JR went nuts and... I mean, started with a I mean, started with honest, a song. A lot of these podcasts are so interminable that something like that happening just <laughs> just kind of keeps people listening. It's 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 in my feed as the one where JR some yep. bursts in. Yeah, um, yeah. So the cyberspace ending at the time, I don't know if it would have been a massive pain in the ass yet, but it did go on to be a kind of defining feature of an awful lot of the books. Where they'd finish in yeah. someone's subconscious, or I mean, I'd I'd be honest. I don't think it works. In I think to make it work, you have to be James Joyce, basically. Yes. It's, yeah. To get away with the kind of that sort of stream of consciousness, like you have to be a poet. You have to be a really strong, strong writer. You have to like bring in kind of. Uh, bits of classical literature, bits of poetry from here, allusions to this, politics here. Just just doing it like they seem to do it in the new adventures never, never works. No, it's like they're all trying to rewrite the Deadly Assassin yeah. by way of, I can't even think what the kind of dominant sci-fi example of, of the cyberspace ending would have been in, in sort of 93... I mean, I don't know what I, mean, William, I haven't read much of William Gibson. But, oh, it could be Gibson, yeah. But I, I imagine that that kind of... I certainly think it's what people would imagine Gibson to write. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure... I mean, I read Neuromancer yeah. twice okay. around this time. Yeah. And now that you've said that, I'm pretty sure that did have a kind of... But again, that would have been probably slightly better realized i think with a lot of these you have you know little bouncing dalek icons and and the doctor's got you know a literal ace up his sleeve and it's all very it it doesn't work in a in a book i mean it's a tv idea i think the sad fact is most of the people writing new adventures aren't a-list writers they aren't the best writers in the world but they know Doctor Who, and I think they have a 
if at best they have a direction to follow and i think they produce pretty good adventures and they they're good they're, they're good at creating concepts new concepts i think there are good writers um i think mark platt paul Cornell, ben aronovich i think they're stylish writers um but most of the time it's just they've come up with a good idea I think Birth, Birthright is a pretty good potboiler for me. Um, I think it's clunky, but it's the, the setting is kind of idiot-proof in terms of atmosphere. I think the you're right, when I was reading the kind of the dreamscape ending, it's very much Deadly Assassin. And I think that episode of Deadly Assassin works really well because it's on television and because it's got Tom Baker acting in it. Without those two things, it's just, it is interminable. But again, it's very short. Um, and you can read it very quickly because you're not actually missing any plot by, by skipping over bits. And I suppose it's it's a conceit that the writer could have used to make the book maybe 300 pages long if he'd wanted to. Yeah. I mean, clearly, Robinson's a fairly experienced writer at this point and he's going to get away with the absolute minimum he can to get his... To get his check in the post, yeah. and I don't mean that. I don't mean that ideologically or artistically. I just mean in terms of sheer word count. I mean, this has got to be. I don't know. It's a shorter. 70. It's a shorter one, isn't it? It's one of the shorter ones. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not as long as Iceberg. <laughs> um, what did you think of the idea of having that kind of uh, duo- duology, where you've got these? So I, I learned the word uh, when I read this when I was sixteen. I learned the word contemporaneous. Yes, I remember from, from this <laughs> book, which I didn't. I learned the word. I learned the word. Um, what's the word for happy accident? Serendipity. Serendipity. I learned from the Green Death. Right. Contemporaneous. I learned from from Birthright, which is a bit sad when I was sixteen. Um, I thought it was. I thought it was a really good idea, and it's a really. It's an idea that you know, on television, they now use when there's there's too many episodes. For the actors to physically appear appear in them without falling over dead or with their backs gone. Um, I think it worked. I didn't think it was going to work when I was 16. I, I didn't see the point of a Doctor Who novel without the Doctor in it. Um, Bernice Summerfield was still a new character at that point. So she hadn't kind of, she hadn't kind of become a kind of a central character. But I think, I think Robinson and I think the writer's quickly recognise what sort of character Paul Cornell had created and how what potential she had. And I think that, that helps. Um, to be honest, when I was 16, I was much more excited by Iceberg. Um, I liked the look of Birthright, but Iceberg was incredibly exciting. And then obviously I tried reading it and it's just... You know, yes, it's, 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 it's fairly poorly written, yes, isn't it? Yeah, it's not yes. great. Um, but the idea, you know, is great. There's There's a line... There's a line from Birthright that I've always been able to quote. There's a line from um, Iceberg that I've always been able to quote. The line from Iceberg is not broadcastable. Okay. Um, <laughs> the one, the one from this, and I, I did write it down to get it absolutely right, is where Queen Elizabeth says, "Never have I seen such great knowledge. Never, indeed, since my coronation in 1559." <laughs> 
I mean, that's good, isn't it? I mean, that's Chippewa-esque. <laughs> that's that's. I mean, I I'd go further. I think you had it when you said James Joyce. That uh, level. I mean, yeah, it's it's a wonder that Nigel Robinson hasn't <laughs> hasn't been asked back to write for the television series. He might be he might be dead. <laughs> I think he's still active on the socials. So, um, uh, the latest latest news on Peter Grimwade. Oh God, I, there's more in Grimwade. No, games. I oh, I checked God. when he died, and he died in 1990. Oh. Sad, sadly, died in 1990. But this is obviously, you know, around the time or just before the time that that Nigel Robinson would have written. Uh, so now. So now here's a, a hypothetical. Let's say that they were going to write the book together. Yeah. Let's say Grim Wade dies in 1990. Yeah. Before they can write the book together because the yeah. new adventures haven't been greenlit. Do you think Nigel Robinson published it purely under his own name because he knew that the only other person who knew about it was dead? I mean, there is a mystery here. Oh. Because, because if... Yeah, you're right. So... Um, Peter Grimwade submits the scripts to Nigel Robinson in his role as as editor of Target books, intending you know Nightmare Fair, Mission to Magnus, blah de blah. So that's going to be one of those series. So Nigel Robinson sits on Grimwade scripts. In the meantime, Grimwade dies. Nigel Robinson takes these scripts home with him, and then writes Birthright. You'd say if it was charitably as a homage or out of respect to the dead Peter Grimwade, you'd have thought he would have put some sort of acknowledgement yes, in the book. Yes, Many thanks so. to the late Peter. This book is dedicated to memory to great Peter Grimwade. Whose idea it originally was. He yes. doesn't do that. So the only that. conclusion is, I mean, Nigel Robinson isn't coming out of this looking very, looking very well. Very good. He's um he's on my list now. I, I think mean, we're going to put out a. To be a honest, it's, it's it's genuinely slightly scandalous because he couldn't have like, accidentally, he couldn't have just accidentally ad- adapted it. He, he, no, no, not really. It's That's, known. Um, it's known about. So there must be there must be something dodgy going on. And Nigel Robinson, yeah. of course, in, then goes on after writing his new adventures. He writes novelizations of episodes of The Tomorrow People and The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Baywatch, and the film, the film Free Willy. <laughs> <laughs> but by nineteen ninety by nineteen ninety seven, he had also penned a, a trilogy science fiction novels: First Contact, Second Nature, and Third Degree, which I'm to be honest, I'm tempted to go try and hunt down. Because <laughs> I'm up for reading those, so there we go. They, wow, that's incredible. Oh, so he, he also wrote the Luke <laughs> Luke Cannon show jumping mysteries series, <laughs> which sounds like sounds like Hardy Boys, but set in the world of show jump, show jumping. So yeah, now I've got a sort of Jilly Cooper Hardy Boys. Kind of There's this the wonderful series of crimes that always conveniently happen within yeah. 30 feet of Newmarket race course. Yeah, it sounds like so... mid- Midsummer Murders. The, the, <laughs> the, the horse jumps over the fence and immediately tramples someone to death. And oh, wow. This, this is amazing. So the, the further body of work that Robinson went on to produce clearly contains wonders. I think this was his last Doctor Who book, wasn't it? Uh, yes, so he wrote at the yeah. time we were in Apocalypse, which I remember, I, I have read, I did read sort of late in the day, and I didn't yeah. mind too much. 
I thought it was a good sort of sci-fi sci-fi adventure. Um, uh, workmanlike. Yes. Yeah. But then, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the same with same with Birthright. If they just produced workmanlike novels, that's kind of what I was looking for, and it kind of feeds me now because. And when I was 16, I was nostalgic for Doctor Who. I wanted to see Doctor Who on, on in books. Now I'm mm. nostalgic for the new adventures. I just want the uh, new adventure text. I want that new adventure experience that exists yeah. in so few new adventures. This is why your podcast is going to be so depressing because it's constantly going to be <laughs> discovering that the new adventures isn't quite what you remember and that there are maybe two or three genuinely readable new adventures out there. And the rest are kind of... Just disappointing. This is the fear I'm starting to have. I'm also reassessing that I've always held that the Eighth Doctor adventures were terrible. Okay. Um, and reading them back so far, they really haven't been. No, I mean. So I think I'm. I mean, I'm the, flipping. The, the Dick's Dick's first book is a crime. Is as far as I remember, a crime against literature, and it isn't actually a book at all. It's just a sequence of vignettes, and it's almost un unreadable i mean terence terence dix has high points when he's actually trying but gradually as his career progresses in doctor who he just puts down fan fan theories that that don't like john peel but but i think the eighth doctor the eighth doctor adventures goes lance parkin gets involved lance parkin's a genuinely good good writer is a really intelligent writer um so yeah yeah i'm i'm it's fun that so so uh, <laughs> sorry um so in closing when you when you think of the new adventures yeah do you st- still kind of think of birthright as one of the one of the better ones or whereabouts does it rank for you i think it's got the best cover um it's difficult to tell because i quite enjoyed rereading it. i genuinely enjoyed rereading it i think i i had a good time I didn't struggle to get through it. And I think I tried rereading Conundrum recently and I did struggle with it. And I remember loving that when I was six. I loved it when I was 16. But but now it feels a bit too artificial to me, which is its point. But I find that slightly alienating. Um, so I think I think Birthright is a, is a, is a distinctive strong entry in the new adventures it's not a good novel and i think some new adventures are good novels some have stood the test of time um some clearly contain evidence that the writer is destined to good things birthright contains evidence that the writer will one day write the quiz book to tie in with the film the chronicles of narnia the lion the witch and the wardrobe which was which was his most recent work according to wikipedia and I think I think that kind of tells you tells you everything. I think Nigel Robinson is is the t- kind of the Terence Dix of the New Adventures, or has the potential to be the Terence Dix of the New Adventures. Not the Robert Holmes, not the Chris Boucher, Boucher, uh, not the Ben Aronovich of the New Adventures. Um, but but it's it's you know it's solid. I had the reverse the reverse experience to you. Yeah, well that's very interesting. Um... Um, um, you know, in 30 years' time, if we read it again, maybe we'll know a bit more about the, the Grimwade factor as well, and that'll, yeah, in the, that'll change in, things again. In the era of William V. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
la partide Delgado, acolo este Va fi corner, dragi ascultători de... And now, some more humans will share their thoughts and memories about this book. Their names are Kevin, Dylan, David, James and Liam. Now then, this is what we want. A sordid London location. A string of unexplained murders. The terror of Springhill Jack. Benny being sarcastic. Benny beating someone up in prison. Benny being the smartest person in the room. Can you tell I'm a fan of Miss Summerfield? This is all despite having never read a single book with her in it up until now. I've listened to quite a few Bernice audios starring the lovely Lisa Bowman, though. In fact, I may not have read the new adventure before, but as soon as I saw the name Chatiz, I had about a deja vu. And that's because Big Finish adapted the story into an audio play back in 1999, lopping out the Doctor and Ace and adding in Jason Kane with Colin Baker playing Russian detective Mikhail Popov. Now, I didn't come to that until a long time after release, but I remember rather enjoying it. And here I am now back with the Virgin novel. The original, you might say. And I wish I could say it's better than the copy, but it's a bit of a jumbled book, to be honest. I can see what Nigel Robinson was going for with the juxtaposed locations and splitting the TARDIS team up across time and space. But the Seventh Doctor's hardly in it, I know that will be explained when we get to Iceberg. And Ace's troubles on a future Earth fighting the insectoid Charol? Well, a bit dull and obvious. And I kind of wish that Springhill Jack had been more than confused monsters that act like grasshoppers. Although, there is another version of that mystery in the DWMH Doctor comics, which, coincidentally, I've also just been reading. There are a few nice ideas in the mix, the TARDIS being split in two, Benny and Ace not entirely sure the Doctor's being straight with them, Aliens who just want to find a safe place to live, whatever the cost. Call-outs to relatives of past companions. And Benny's fantasy battle in the mindscape of the TARDIS. Spiders chewing on Adric's bones? Now that's nasty. But maybe that's my other issue too. Tonally, it kind of feels all over the place, with some things not really going anywhere. For example, there's a bloody battle between the humans and the Charol in London. The description is streets awash with hot steaming blood and the anguished cries of the dismembered. A bit much, even for stories too broad and deep for the small screen. And as for Bellingham, he's built up to be a really nice, nasty piece of work until he's suddenly killed off Paige. Sorry, what? And then when we get to the end, there's Moldwitch. OK, clearly an alternate version of the Doctor or something. And he waves his hands, locks the shower in an internal TARDIS dimension and magically removes the seeds from the infected women, including Benny. Hang on, is this a Series 2 RTD script? There's just a few too many easy solutions. In fact, the TARDIS seems to solve the rest of things itself, really. At least like the last book we reviewed, things end up with a big bang. In this case, the Tunguska explosion of 1908. And cue more fond memories of me reading the Unexplained magazine in my youth. And in fact, I'm surprised it took Doctor Who this long to deal with the event, given that we've had an explanation for the destruction of Atlantis at least three times by now. But all in all, it's a case of plus points for reading about Benny's adventures in Victorian London, but very much a case of nice audio. Shame about the book. Great cover, though. Way before Big Finish were making Doctor Who, they were making sort of Doctor Who. They got the license to adapt some of the new adventures into audio plays without the Doctor and focusing instead on Benny. 
From what I recall, the Doctor doesn't really feature much at all in the novel, or is that the memory cheating? So this one was a prime contender for adaptation. The TARDIS is gone, instead Benny travels via a time ring, and with no ace, Bernice's ex-husband Jason Kane joins her on this adventure. So like all the early big finishes, it's a little rough around the edges. The sound design and the score aren't quite perfect, and it shares more in common with the better of the BBV audios than the best of Big Finish, even those early plays. In terms of performances, it's very theatrical. I don't think you'd even hear these sort of performances in a Big Finish now. It's very much something for the last century, and not even the latter part of the last century. It's almost tongue-in-cheek how it's played. Story-wise, it's a little slow and could easily be an hour long, but it can be quite funny in places, and as always, Lisa Bauman steals the show, while Colin Baker, playing Mikhail Popov, well, his performance has to be heard to be believed. Sometimes Scottish, sometimes American, sometimes Eastern European, but if it wasn't for the name, I'm not sure I'd know he was Russian at all. But nevertheless, it's a funny scenery tune performance, so we'll let it go. Overall, this doesn't quite reach the heights of the best of the Benny stories or the best of the Big Finish stories, but as a fun little oddity before Big Finish became the fan wank bear moth that it is today, it's worth a listen. The Virgin New Adventure Birthright is a very interesting example for me of how wrong I can be as a teenager and how wrong I was as a teenager. Now, I can remember Birthright coming out when I was just turned 13 and in grade 7 at school and being incredibly uninterested in it because of what was coming down the pipeline. Shortly after Birthright arrived in Australia, we had Iceberg, where they were bringing back the Cybermen. We had Bloodheat, where they were bringing back the Silurians. We had The Left-Handed Hummingbird, being written by local author Kate Orman. We had Conundrum. We had No Future. There were lots of big novels coming down the pipeline. And as a teenager, I was much more interested in those than I was in Birthright. When I did read the novel, there were a couple of things that stood out to me. One was that the Charl were very similar to the aliens in the Star Trek Next Generation episode Schism, which I thought was really, really interesting. But a lot of it didn't really interest me that much as a 13-year-old. The idea of them coming back and being Jack the Ripper seemed a little bit cliched, even by that stage in the 1990s, and it didn't really grab me. I was also very put off by the character of Moldwich. Moldwish? Moldwike? Moldwike. I was very put off by the character of Moldwike because I was a very nerdy 13-year-old Doctor Who fan. And all of this sort of hinting that he could be the Doctor and kind of like Gronowig and in Delta the Bannerman, he could be the Doctor too and everybody could be a future Doctor and Merlin's a future Doctor. And I was very like, no, the Doctor's special. The Doctor's unique. It's very rare to have a Doctor. And this Doctor certainly isn't a grumpy old man sitting on future Earth being very unhelpful. So none of that resonated for me at the time. And I kind of dismissed this book and went on to Iceberg and Bloodheat and those other big exciting ones. Many years later, decades later in fact, when I came back and read it, I realised how much I wasn't appreciating. The writing is very good. The ideas are actually subtler and more detailed than I had expected. And Moldwike, Moldwich, Moldwish, not sure. He actually was an interesting character and my universe has now been opened up more by these concepts. That said, it does feel very much like a book that could only have been written in the mid-90s, and I think now Doctor Who and the concepts around its universe have moved on from that and perhaps moved past that. But at the time, a book to throw away, good, not that exciting. Now a book I really appreciate. 
And yes, the cover is great. When they announced that they were doing the complete history, the big 90-volume set, I was genuinely disappointed that the word complete didn't include at least one volume purely dedicated to the wilderness years. So much of what we see in modern Doctor Who really has its roots in that time. And I think one of the books that often gets overlooked and needs a bit more attention is Birthright. In the 60s, you had Doctor Light episodes within stories because the actor was on holiday. And we're now very accustomed to the idea of Doctor Light episodes because the production schedule just doesn't simply allow the, the actor playing the lead to do 14 episodes a year or whatever. But Birthright is the first Doctor Light story where it's done just because they want to do a Doctor Light story. And as such, I think it's really the indication that companions, they're not just ciphers anymore. They're not two-dimensional characters with the occasional bit of depth thrown in. They're fully rounded, very well-developed characters that can actually carry an entire story themselves. I mean, yes, it helps that it's Benny and Ace. It's very difficult to imagine any other pairing of companions that would have worked quite so well for Birthright. But it is... Dr. Light because they wanted to do a Dr. Light one. It's just a shame you got paired with Iceberg as the companion light one. The other reason that Birthright being Dr. Light is so wildly important is it meant that Big Finish could adapt it incredibly easily for their Benny-only Ranger stories. Walking to Babylon never had the Doctor in to start off with. Just War, it's a really good audio, but it, it misses out an awful lot of really good Doctor bits. But Birthright was a very obvious one to adapt. And when you look at the success of those early Benny stories, you have to say, well, actually, those Benny stories were so good and things like Birthright were so naturally Benny-orientated that it led to them getting the Doctor Who licence, which then led to them getting Paul McGann, which basically meant that yeah, Birthright is the book that enabled Doctor Who to live on through to 2003 when Russell T. Davis took it over. And although we've had the David J. Howe book about the Virgin Era, I think we really have been robbed of a thorough tome about each individual story, not just the artwork and everything, but the, 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 the text within and everything like that. And if someone were to do that, I think kind of if you were to rank the important Virgin stories... Birthright is definitely way up at the top of the list. Hey guys, Jason from Doctor Who Literature here. I remember exactly where I was when I first heard that Nigel Robinson was writing a second new adventure. Well, no. I don't remember exactly where I was. Probably in the computer lab on my undergrad campus reading Rec Arts Doctor Who, which is how I spent way too much of my undergrad years. But I do remember how I felt. Worried. Because Robinson's first NA, Time Warm Apocalypse, two years earlier, had been a disappointment for me, coming after both Genesis and Exodus, which I'd enjoyed immensely. Once I bought Birthright, because, hey, I may have been worried, but this was 1993 and there was never a timeline in which I was not going to buy an NA, my worries instantly turned to joy. Birthright's an unusual little book. It checks in at a bantamweight 216 pages, made up of short chapters and choppy sentences. The first new adventure to admit the Doctor entirely, 
apart from Sylvester McCoy cameos in brief passages at the beginning and end. It's part of a brief two-book detour, not so much an arc, bookended by Iceberg. It introduces a potential recurring character, of whom more in a minute, and shows the Doctor at his darkest and most manipulative, even when he's off-screen. On that first read, I enjoyed the way that the Doctor's fingerprints were allowed to remain all over the action, even when he wasn't there. I enjoyed the new character, Moldwitch, who seemed to have an intimate connection with the Doctor. Moldwitch wears the same blue Roman ring favored by the first Doctor on TV, and much of his dialogue sounded as if it were recycled from classic series TV episodes. The two characters share one charming scene together. I also enjoyed the way the first hundred pages were set in a familiar version of gaslit Victorian London and anchored by Benny, who in 1993 was only in her second year as companion, and of course here we are almost 30 years later and she still features a new material. Now, Birthright noticeably drags when the location shifts to an alien rock quarry in the second half, where Ace is trying to galvanize a bunch of one-dimensional, if that, human freedom fighters, but the action returns to London fairly quickly. Birthright's not perfect. When I read it back, several years later, in order to compose a written review, from which this audio essay is very loosely adapted, some technical faults grabbed my attention more than the story. Benny, who, let's face it, her character did zig and zag quite a bit in the earliest NAs, has some unfortunate moments that haven't aged well for me. She aids in the theft of jewelry from the purse of an, un- of an unconscious assault victim, and is seen to exult at the death of a foe later on. While I still enjoy the story's fast pacing, the writing style of a 216-page book feels more like an outline of a novel rather than a book in its own right. Passages which could have conveyed tension or drama felt underwritten in retrospect, more like post-it notes describing what the author intended to write later on. 216 pages is much longer than Apocalypse had been, but it's still on the very short side for the NAs. For example, to give you concrete illustrations rather than an airing of grievances, the scene where Benny burgles an antiquarian bookshop and encounters Birthright's insectoid alien menace lasts for only one page, but ideally could have gone on for a bit longer, for atmosphere and impact. In terms of the prose, one room is described as, quote, a massive chamber the size of a small church, and I'm not quite sure how the words massive and small work together in the same sentence. Another character sees the square outline of where the TARDIS had once been on the grass, and instantly recognizes the shape of a tall blue box. Not sure how that works either. Moldwitch is shown here at the very beginning of a loosely defined story arc. I've seen pages and pages of writing on various internet wikis, assuring us that Moldwitch is a future, a distant future incarnation of the Doctor, perhaps the same one seen as Merlin in the opening pages of the target novelization from Battlefield. I'm quite positive I wouldn't have guessed all that in 1993, and we're not likely to have that confirmed now on television, with the Chibnall era having just spent much more time looking backwards at who the Doctor used to be, rather than forward, but the fact remains that Moldwitch is an intriguing and engaging character, as Robinson writes for him, and of course, without that initial interesting appearance, 
you wouldn't have all these pages and pages of speculation and links to other media all these years later. So Birthright remains an interesting time capsule into what Doctor Who looked like in print in 1993. The manipulative Doctor, the tantalizing but unfinished hints about various bits of Time Lord lore, all the elements for success are right there. And it's not really damning with faint praise to say that this is certainly Nigel Robinson's best and most effective novel. Adventure range, you know, there's so many um, prescient books that predictate the way that the modern series, I don't want to call it the new series anymore because we're, we're coming up to nearly two decades of the damn thing. But, um, you know, so there's so many books that, you know, predicate the, the directions and the narrative stance that the show would go in. And we're looking at things like Damaged Goods, obviously, by RTD. Barred Therapy, which Ian so superbly covered the other month. Uh, you know, and there's these books, and even Longbarrow to an extent, which we saw echoes of that bleeding through Timeless Children and Flux. So you can see a generation of uh, fans taking in the styles and the narrative exploration of the world that has been presented in the VNAs, and that's been kind of mapped on to the modern generation in much the same way as you're looking at people like Millie Gibson now, who's saying that uh, her ear was the Tennant and Smith incarnations of the role. So one ear kind of vicariously creates the other. Birthright is one of the most important to these because... This is a book where the Doctor is hugely absent for a great deal of it. Uh, but yet, but yet, this is a book where the iconography of the piece bleeds off the page to such an extent that the key image artwork by Peter Elson on the front cover was actually used by Philip Siegel for his 1996 Amblin Bible. Uh, that's an astonishing thing. You know, we're not looking at a, a target novelisation of the original run. We're not looking at, you know, a, a key story in the series' past, the tombs opening, you know, the giant robot, Daverson, Scarrow, and Genesis, etc., etc. We're looking at a book that was entirely conceived for the V&A narrative form. And that's astonishing. This is Bernie Summerfield's book. She is particularly the main character in it. Her companion is a very, very mysterious individual called Mudwitch. I'm not going to spoil who Mudwitch is because I think that Ian will probably have a whole section of that exploration on the show itself. But suffice to say, it's a character that has amassed a lot of speculation over the years. And in many ways, actually, again, accurately points forward to some of the depictions and some of the controversy around the Doctor in the modern series. So, there we are. Um, I personally am a sucker for all things Victoriana, you know. The the blood-drenched streets of Whitechapel and the, the rainy cobbles. and it's a, it's a delicious period to revisit. It's part of the reason the Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories endure so magnificently to this day. Um, to look at a book where the series has been so firmly rooted itself, I was going to say down to earth there, but um, it's kind of a spoiler. But uh, where it's so firmly rooted itself in, uh, for me, is fascinating because I love those stories that kind of slowly do a build up of dread and terror. You know, this reminds me uh, if it was made into a modern series. 
episode it'd be perfect for kind of you know to be shot by somebody like ben weekly who does all these kind of off kilter you, you can angles you know with the camera you can imagine all this stuff just taking place away from the corner of your eye you know just out of frame what's that moving in the shadows there with this kind of hulking cloak and this slightly insectoid kind of form you know it's it's a delicious book um there's so much to be gained from it there's so much to be gained from it um you know, it's it's rich in exploration. It was one of actually the uh, seminal uh, V&As that I bought uh, in the 30th anniversary year. And amidst, you know, kind of the brouhaha and the razzmatazz of titles like Blood Heat, um, you know, uh, Lucifer Rising, the Dimension Riders, you know, uh, this kind of slipped underneath the radar. People were like, oh, it's the other half of the double one with Iceberg. You know, it's it's the doctors off fighting Cybermen. So over here, we're going to have Bernice stranded in Victorian London, you know amazingly for me this actually works uh not only does it work it's probably one of the strongest ones of that anniversary year i urge nay i demand that you guys all check it out if you haven't done if you have done you know exactly what i'm talking about ian i'm going to hand over to you you know exactly what to say next gosh yes there is literally only one thing i can say that would end this episode on an exciting enough cliffhanger Join us next month when we discuss Blood Harvest by Terence Diggs. <laughs>